Having trouble staffing up? You're not alone. Our industry is facing an unprecedented labor shortage, and tech will play a central role in solving that problem. Yelp Kiosk was built in 2018 for restaurants who couldn't afford to pay a dedicated host. In 2021, Yelp Kiosk is supporting restaurants that want to do more with less. By adding Kiosk, your host is no longer trapped behind the host stand, enabling them to assist in all front-of-house operations. Learn more about how Kiosk can help your restaurant at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash kiosk. Now here we go. Are we actually doing what we think we are doing? And like I said, look at your P&L. You'll see where you spend your most amount of money. That's what matters to you most. But if you even have a morsel of saying, I want to be a better leader, more passionate, a more of a servant leader, then let's see how we're spending our time, money, and energy. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Why won't our people come back to work? What do we need to do to get them back and get them excited about rebuilding this industry together? Restaurateur Michel Falcon has been asking the same questions, and he's come up with some really useful answers. Today we dive deep into the recipe he uses to create and manage world-class teams and the tactics he uses to keep those teams inspired. I would say the one thing that I'm very proud of, I won't say most, is when Food & Wine Magazine wrote about our practices toward our employees. I can't recite the exact title, so I'm paraphrasing this, but it said something along the lines of how this Toronto restaurant has achieved an employee retention 2.5 times higher than the industry average. That's something that really matters to me in the restaurant business. I'm responsible for brand and people with my partners and people being company culture, employee engagement, and customer experience. So when we get some nice article and press about that, and of course our food and such, like that makes me feel really good. We also grew from zero to $15 million and 150 employees in less than two years, which was really hard and likely took a couple of years off my professional life. I learned a lot. So those two things stand out the most. But even above all that is just looking at this industry and thinking, how can we do things differently in which neighboring industries, ones that are non-competing, can we learn from? And that gets me most excited. Let's back up a little bit because you said something that I thought was really interesting. And I think all of us end up wearing many hats. And you were like, I'm in charge of brand and people. Did you start out in charge of brand and people or was it like you were in charge of brand and people? And when the buster didn't show up, you swept the floors and every now and then you'd end up cooking on the line and you're the dishwasher every Friday night because someone always doesn't show up. And like, how did you get because independent restaurateurs, myself included, rarely get the opportunity to work on the business because we're so busy working in the business. So how did you go from being in charge of, let's say, everything to brand and people? So there's two parts to this question. The first is from 2016 to 2019 is that growth I had told you about zero to 15 million and 115 boys. That is when my business partners and I came together and we were not necessarily owner operators. We were partners, but we had a full-fledged management team that would run the night. 
Okay, so we started big, but with my next business, which is in the fast casual restaurant industry, I'm everything that you just described. So today I am menu testing. I am speaking to the suppliers myself. We're opening our first location in two weeks. Guess who's going to be on the front lines? So this is going to be very interesting because before 2016, the only restaurant experience I had was working at a restaurant in Vancouver where I lived at the time during college, right, as a server. So it's taken a different path. And to add another element to that, you would probably think that I would want nothing to do with the restaurant industry because when I was 16 years old, my father had to file for bankruptcy because he was a restaurateur. And unfortunately, he trusted the wrong two people. He thought they were friends. This is an extended story, but he eventually got screwed over and had to file for bankruptcy. But to answer that question, it's hard because my career in restaurants is kind of pinball. Does it feel like a step back or is it a lateral move? It is. And what perhaps. would possess you? What would possess you if you were out to get in and get in deeper? On the surface, it might seem like a step backwards, but it's to take a giant leap forward. Leaving my hospitality group with my partners, which I'm still a, an equity owner. In. I don't get the emails every single day. I would have lived a fantastic life. My fiance and I would have had more than enough money to live a great life, but something was eating at me. I'm not too sure how many people listening are familiar with partnerships, but they're hard, right? They take effort, right? There's some people that I know in business have a therapist specifically for their business partnerships. I also wanted a clear runway. I wanted to create the company that I had always dreamed of. And being in a minority position in my partnership, that's kind of hard, right? So to answer your question, perhaps on the surface, it seems like a small step backwards, but it's to take a giant leap forward because I wanted to build a business that was also scalable. I want people to enjoy the flavors of Peru all over the world. And I daydream about what does Rasa Peruvian kitchen look like in China or Japan or in Europe? So I will get there, but in the short term, I'm going to be a humble, humble operator. Earlier, you referenced company culture and your expertise around people. You also wrote a book about it. What inspired you to write that book? A mutual friend of ours told me, Tucker Max, he said, what the hell, dude? Why haven't you written a book yet? And I said, well, how do I write a book? Um, and he has a whole business, of course, on how to become an author. I had systems, processes, stories to share that was just all living in my head. And he compelled me to put it together in a book. And I'm very proud to have my expertise be kind of in the realm of people and culture, because it's just a genuine, authentic business. If you think of how businesses were started in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, they did not have Instagram. They did not have pay-per-click and so forth. How you built a business was by genuinely caring about your employees and giving them some motivation to care about your customers. And at the end of the day, there's a profit to be had. I want to go back to that. You know, of course, I'm going to leverage Instagram and so forth and SMS marketing and all that good stuff. But it's not going to come before how we invest in our people. And when I talk to professionals, anybody that wants to listen, I'll tell them, show me your P&L statement and I'll tell you what matters to you. 
you'll see the budget goes to PR, mm-hmm. right? It goes to the traditional things. And I'm going to invest in the things that I believe will build a business for decades because I intend on doing so. High level, what were the major themes in the book? It was very strategic on how to build a business inward and then focus going outward. At the end of the day, the tagline to the book is build a lasting business by shifting your focus from profits to people. That's not to say I'm not capitalistic. I believe in earning a profit. It's how do we go about doing this? So I share stories from my restaurants I share a story from my days as a consultant working in automotive and gaming and did many different industries and how you have to focus your attention inside the business first and let it grow outward. I have an 80-20 rule. It's an arbitrary number, but the idea is 80% of your time has to focus on working on building the relationships with the people within your business. And 20% of your time should be focused on the customer. That's contrarian because we're always told the customer is always right. I actually reject that statement within reason. There's a few asterisks next to it. But it's just like, how can we recruit people? How do we properly recruit to repel people from even applying to our business? Because they're going to read the job description and be like, oh, this is too serious for me, or I just want to go somewhere where I can check in and check out. How do we interview? How do we onboard memorably? And what type of tactics can be taken to our business that are affordable? Like, I'm a pretty thrifty person. That's a diplomatic way of saying I'm pretty cheap. So I like to try to find things that are cost effective, because there's always going to be somebody, uh, your VP of finance, your bookkeeper and investor that will say, show me the ROI. All right, well, I'll show you. Let me invest in these things, which are cost-friendly, and you'll see the return. But you have to be patient because an ROI of company culture, which I describe in the book, isn't going to happen overnight. And to give you an example, Joshua, like you and I, we just recently met a couple weeks ago. Okay, It's going to take time for us to foster trust and so forth. And then from there, the value will come, whatever that value might be. Maybe I introduce you to somebody and whatever. But it's going to take time. It's not like I gave you my PIN code to my bank account the second day. And that's what we have to do as leaders, regardless of industries. You have to be patient because think of the most fruitful relationships in your personal life. They took time. Now, talk to me about what it specifically looks like in action. What are you doing that other people aren't doing? Because I would assume that everybody listening is like, I don't have bandwidth for this, dude. Like, I'm barely hanging on. We just got out of a global pandemic. So if you can unpack it and let me know what it looks like in action and how simple, easy, actionable things people could do. Sure. So I would argue that you do have the time. You're just spending it somewhere else. And I'm not here to say shame on you for not focusing on the things that I believe in. I'm not arrogant like this. You do have the time. You're just spending it somewhere else. So maybe reevaluate. Maybe there's some things that you could offboard to somebody else and take on something that I'll just describe. There's many things that I outline in the book. However, I want to focus just on one thing. There's an interview question. The interview process is so uh, rudimentary in many companies. It's like a pulse check. Like, when can you start? Tomorrow, you're hired. Like, no wonder you have a bad customer experience. No wonder you have high turnover. We have to hire people like we're planning a wedding, right? You're very meticulous on who are you going to invite? Who's going to sit next to who? So we got to 
have that same type of mentality and be extremely strategic in our interview process. One of the questions, and role play with me, Joshua, I'm going to pretend that you're applying to be a bartender. Okay, let's do it. One of the questions is going to be, what is an indulgence that you cannot live without that costs less than $20? Oh, that's a good question. Something that you like. Something like if it was wiped off the face of the earth, you'd be like, oh, no. I mean, generally, booze. Booze is nice. Sure. That's fair. <laughs> what type of booze? So if I'm going light, man, this audience is going to get to know way too much about me. I was born <laughs> and raised in Southern Louisiana, so I'm going to start there. But like, if I'm drinking beer, I'm probably drinking Bud Light. If I'm drinking booze, I'm probably drinking Jack Daniels. What's your favorite Jack Daniels-based cocktail? And in the interview, as a side note, I'm asking these questions. I'm probing. What is your favorite Jack Daniels-based cocktail? I'm a two-tone kind of guy, so I'm going to say a Jack and Diet. Okay. So what I'm going to do is take this information and go on with the interview process. And then we're going to take you to the technical part. Remember, you're applying to be a bartender. I need to make sure you know actually how to do your thing. But that question I ask is in the culture interview before the skill set Right. I don't care if you know how to make the a Manhattan at this point. I just need to make sure that you're going to fit within our culture. On sure. we go through the interview process. Guess what? You're hired. You passed all the assessments and all this good stuff. On day one of onboarding, I'm going to take what I learned from the $20 question. And in this case, I'm probably as the owner of the company or as your direct leader, I'm going to say, you know what, Joshua, after training today, at 5 p.m., I want to take you to Bar Chef. It's a famous cocktail place in Toronto. And then we're going to sit down, and I'm going to remember that you had the Jack Daniels. That was your indulgence. So I'm going to call the bartender ahead and say, I've got this new employee starting. I need to knock his socks off. Forget about the Jack and Coke. Make something he's never seen before. Okay? And now why do I do this? You're going to remember the interview question. But I'm creating an experience for you that you've never seen before as an employee. I've now earned the permission to ask you to do that for our customers. Because think of how many times we ask our employees, deliver better customer service, deliver better customer experience. But one, we don't do it to them on day right. one. Day Go one ahead. is optimum. You have to set the precedent. This is how we behave for each other and with customers. And so that was something that I outlined in the book, plus other things. But what I like to do is I've retired all that, right? I have Subway is asking that question now. Like hundreds of companies are now asking the $20 question. I've retired it. I don't like to rest on my laurels or anything. So I'm creating new $20 like questions for the next business. And this goes to what I share with leaders and entrepreneurs is, you need to, every three months, every quarter, you need to look under the hood and inspect what you expect. You need to continuously refine all the processes that go into welcoming your employees to your team, things that impact your customer. Because there are times that you'll let a year, a year and a half go by and you realize, oh, we're still asking the same interview questions that we were two years ago. Well, no wonder our programs are stale. I feel terrible in role-playing with you. I just think to myself, man, it's such a valid point that you have to show hospitality in, in order to prove the model out so that they know how to act, that it's more about showing than it is telling. And sometimes it doesn't even need to be within the confines of the four walls of your restaurant. 
And what it comes down to is just listening. You remember, I didn't let you just say alcohol because it would have been weird if I said, oh, here's a ball of rosé wine. But like, yo, I don't drink rosé, right? So because if you think about it, when you ask your employees, personalize the customer experience, make it personal. Well, what an optimum time to do it at the $20 question. So if you had said chocolate, I wouldn't have let you gone away with chocolate. I would have said, well, what region? Ecuadorian chocolate, Colombian chocolate, dark chocolate, milk chocolate, what's your favorite brand? And then like, that's that thing that we do for you. And remember thrifty, less than 20 bucks, right? I'm sure if we went to Bar Chef, I would be spending more than $20 with you because we're not just going to have one and leave. But, um, (laughs) But these ideas just come to me and I'm often asked, how do you think of this stuff? I don't know. I go on a walk, like my environment, for my creative thinking is walking. Sarah Blakely from Spanx, I once heard that she does her critical thinking driving. For me, it's walking. You gotta, when you're trying to solve a problem, don't try to solve it in the same environment where it was created, which is often the office or in restaurants. Think of how noisy or busy it is even before service starts, right? You have suppliers coming in. How can you possibly think critically, right? And it really just comes down to listening. I'll give you an example. Hopefully this airs after Monday, which I'm sure it will in a few days. But before we jumped on here, I told you, I said, I think I've made one of the best hires I've ever made in my career. And I'm really excited for him. And I was starting to think like, what type of gesture can I do for him? Uh, So what I did was I commissioned this artist to take an office chair. He's a fanatic of the Montreal Canadiens hockey team. So I had this artist sketch on the back of the chair, paint this like mural, this mini little mural for him. And that's like his desk or his desk chair. And it just came from listening because during the interview process, we were kind of having just chit chat and mentioned the Montreal Canadiens. This is the least tech thing ever. I take my phone, I go in the notes section and I start tracking notes on people. Boom, boom. And then I search. I say, okay, I need to know something about Miguel. Okay, what did he tell me on this day? So, you know, it's a little bit stalkerish, but it's with good intentions. It is. And one of the things that I wish I had allowed more time and attention for is remembering every employee's hire day, remembering every employee's birthday, even small things like that. Like you should remember every work anniversary. If somebody's been with you two years, especially in the hospitality industry, that's a major commitment. To dig even deeper, let's look at all of this through the lens of the current labor crisis we find ourselves in. How do you think all of this relates to the current labor shortage, all of the hot button conversations about employee comp? Yeah, this is very important. We are not feeling it in Canada as much as we are in the US, but it is this industry is in for a big kick in the face. Uh, You look at even big companies like Tau Group having to pay $500 signing bonuses for dishwashers, bartenders, all across the board. This is costing real money. You look at Chipotle having to raise their pricing to be able to pay $15 minimum wage in the US eventually. I am in an advantageous position because the new brand I'm about to start, the pricing hasn't been set yet. So what most restaurants and businesses do regardless of industry, is what's my cost? What are my COGS? What's the market charging? At a margin, that's my price. Whereas what I want to do is what do I want to pay my employees? So I'll do an analysis of who's paying what in similar businesses. I'm looking at Starbucks. I'm looking at Chipotle and so forth. 
Then I'm looking at food costs. Then I'm looking at the competition. Then I'm doing kind of a price elasticity test and be like, okay, this will be my pricing. It is not a labor shortage. It is a wage shortage. And some of these companies are going to have to be surgical to figure this out. And it's going to be a grand task. But think of the sensitivity. Tim Hortons is a big coffee brand here in Canada. Your Dunkin' Donuts perhaps is the equivalent. You can't raise your pricing 20% to be able to afford, you know, a higher minimum wage. That would pass the price elasticity test. So they're in a really tough position. But with employees, government moves too slow to be able to help them, right? Imagine having the employees unionize. Think of the headache that that would cause. But now you look at, without speaking about the negative too much, look at a company like Starbucks. Say what you will about Starbucks and their product. I would argue, yeah, I could get a better cup of coffee elsewhere. And I think many people would agree with me. But the first company to give healthcare to full and part-time employees in America, the first company to give free college tuition, and they earn a massive profit and they have hundreds of thousands of employees. What a soulful company. It is my favorite company ever. Like Tesla, not interested. Starbucks. And they started with putting the employee first. Wouldn't you want to, if you're a capitalistic type person and believe in profits, wouldn't you like to have been one of the first shareholders of Starbucks? Sure. And you can build a good business and still earn a profit. And I like that. I think that there's a much larger conversation to have about pricing in general, because price more than anything is a story. Right. And I think that by and large in the industry, we've probably done a poor job of telling our story. We're very apologetic as an industry for charging what the food is worth as opposed to what people are willing to pay. We're very apologetic for price increases. Whereas, and again, I feel like I say this on almost every episode, I apologize to the audience, but like you go to a gas station and they raise prices from last week to this week. And like, nobody's running out to the pump to apologize to you and explain why. Cause like, you know why, cause they told you the story because the price is dependent on what they're paying for the fuel. And so obviously it's going to fluctuate based on market supply and demand. Nobody apologizes more than Canadians. So I, I, we're in the same, <laughs> we're in the same orbit. I've never thought of that. And I'm taking this from you. I will credit you, but it is so true. I can't remember what you said exactly, but getting in this industry, it's like, I like being stepped on. I like being belittled. I like being berated. Like, we're courageous people for doing this <laughs> and thankful. I think it comes from a really good place. When you talked about crafting an advertisement and structuring an interview to kind of not only select out the people that you want, but also to eliminate the people that you don't. I've used Chick-fil-A as an example a thousand times. I was on the west side in uh, Santa Monica, and they had a sign in the window that said, if you have a servant's heart, we would love for you to join our team. I'm not a huge fan of Chick-fil-A's politics. I have no problem with saying that publicly. But I will say that like the people that work at Chick-fil-A are like the happiest people on the planet, it seems. And they are pre-selecting. I am sure a thousand people a day drove by that sign and said, not for me. I don't want to be anybody's servant. But for the people that heard it and it resonated, they have pre-selected people that qualify as great employees by their standards. 
Yeah, and I have the same sentiment toward that brand. Also, repelling people right away saves you a lot of time and money, right? If you consider your time money. With this next brand I'm building, I've learned, I've talked about earlier about learning from other industries. And one company that I've really put under a microscope for about a year now is Netflix and how their competitive culture. They say a couple of things that, you know, when you hear something, you're like, ah, I wish I came up with that, right? I revere in so much of what they do, but they said, we will not tolerate brilliant jerks because the cost of teamwork is too high. And if you think about that, think of how many talented people you've worked with in your lifetime who were protected because they were such a good salesperson or whatever, but they repelled everybody. They really were cancerous to the organization. But another thing that they say is adequate performance earns a generous severance. If you're not a performing, we're going to bounce you. And that's a meritocracy. And I believe in the same thing. I'm going to give our employees great pay, massive learning opportunities, and many initiatives that will really elevate what is being done in the industry. But I won't for a second bat my eyelash and take that all away from you if you aren't living with integrity and serving the company. Because I draw parallels between my professional life and my personal life all the time. Sophia, my fiance, would not be engaged to me if I did not meet her halfway every day. So why is it that we as employers can give, 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 give? And I'm not saying every employer is like this, right? But give, 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 and be like, oh, shucks, Johnny didn't show up to work today and gave me a big headache, but uh, so be it. No, that's not right. It's not fair, right? Like, so there's got to be balance. And I'll distill it by describing something that I call the three to one rule. I'm going to pay you. I'm going to pay you on time. And I'm going to give you never seen before learning and development opportunities. The one thing you got to do is bring your whole self to work every day. If you do that and we've hired correctly, you'll naturally just live within our core values and the mission and the purpose of the company. But as soon as you fracture that trust, you're gone. And I'll do it without batting an eyelash. It totally resonates. What are the other lessons from outside of the industry that you've internalized and utilized in your own businesses? Yeah. So I mentioned Netflix, I've, Starbucks. I've looked under the hood of that company a lot. Food. Food is very sensitive. It is emotional. It sucks to have a bad meal, even though you're going to have another one in four hours. So even before culture and customer experience and employee engagement product, okay, so this goes for any industry. Your product comes first because customers aren't going to come back if you have adequate food. Like they might because there's nothing else around. But if you want genuine customers like pounding their chest, trumpeting your brand, it's product. So I look at Nike. I'm a Nike loyalist and I'm a loyalist to a few companies, but I don't have any Adidas clothing. It's only Nike. So what I do is to further understand how do these companies excel I go to LinkedIn, I go to the search bar, I will switch from searching for people to companies and I'll type in Nike and click search. And the algorithm, the LinkedIn algorithm is smart enough to know that I should show Michelle people that work for Nike that might have mutual connections to him or near him in Toronto. And if I see, oh, I have a mutual connection with Jimmy, then I'll reach out to the mutual connection and say, can you introduce me to Jimmy at Nike? If I don't have a mutual connection, then I'll just DM them cold. Say, hey, this is who I am. 
this is what I'm trying to achieve in three sentences because nobody wants to read a paragraph this big. And essentially, in other words, can I ask you for 15 minutes of your time? I have three questions. Be off the phone in 15 minutes. You'd be surprised how many people like talking about themselves or the work that they're doing. Everybody does, right? Uh, it's flattering. So these are some of the things that I do. And then I'll take that. There's a gentleman named Cameron Harold. He's the COO of a company that I worked for in my career. He told me something that I will never forget. R&D doesn't have to stand for research and development. It can stand for rip off and duplicate. So take what you've learned from these other companies, put your little spin on it so you're not totally shameless and doing what Facebook does to every other company and competitor and uh, copying their products. But learn from other companies. Find the time to do it. Don't say you don't have the time. You do. You do. Just even 30 minutes a week. I know a lot of people call it patterning. I have always described it as looking at the architecture of another company in terms of how they structure their menu, their offering, whatever it is. I feel like there's always something to glean. And I can't speak for all restaurateurs, but for me, there's always been a ton of jealousy. Like when I see a menu that's better laid out or a better layout for a restaurant, or they have the same square footage as me, but I counted the number of seats in there because I'm a psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, they managed to fit seven more seats in there. How did they do it? I think there's so much to learn from inside and outside the industry, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely inside also. But there are times too where you have to ask yourself, are they doing it as well as possible? Like, what are the possibilities? So that's For why sure. I like to balance the two, inside and outside. When you work inside and outside the industry, you do a ton of advisory work for corporations like Subway and corporations like Verizon. What are they lacking that you're able to provide? I wouldn't say they're necessarily missing something because everybody's missing something, right? Like, I could be a better marketer. It's a different perspective. And I know that that sounds kind of like a cliche answer, but... Helping people think differently, and especially with brands that are legacy brands, you have to think that a lot of people have tenure at these legacy brands and may have been there for about 20 years. So it's hard to think differently. I would come in there and figuratively speaking, look under the hood and genuinely and intimately understand what are they trying to achieve and just give them little things to work with. Because when you are these massive billion dollar companies, movement or change is slow. And anybody that would say otherwise, I believe are mistaken. So what am I able to do when I was an advisor to companies like these, and they would ask me to come consult for them is they need to get their feet underneath them. They need some fast, quick wins so that they can kind of the snowball effect. So for example, like a company like Subway in helping them figure out how to lower their employee turnover, I'll immediately look at what we just talked about earlier. So what's the interview process like? So I'll help them, I'll share some best practices with them. And then often companies will say, well, give us more, give us more. And I'm like, not yet, right? Like you're still learning how to walk. So doing that and with anybody listening, if they're wanting to create some more innovative strategies within their business, you're going to be exposed to different ways of doing things. But my caution is slow down, do one or two things, one thing for the first quarter, maybe the next quarter, add like two more things. Don't try to boil the ocean. I love that idea of a quick win. 
it's so valuable. And I think that it works for small teams and large teams in the way that if people feel like they're successful and they're successful quickly at the beginning of the process, it just lubes the gears for later success. Yeah, you release endorphins and you want to go do it again. Whereas if you start with something that's labor intensive, it's going to take six months. You don't start to see that uh, kind of the fruits of your labor for six months. You're going to lose momentum and you'll abandon the project or the initiative that you're trying to create. What are your goals for the balance of the year? I am opening up two stores at the same time. Why I do this to myself? Not sure. But when (laughs) I write my end of life book, maybe I'll have some revelations in why I've done this. I want to get to two fast casual stores by the end of the year, Uh, maybe a third. We'll see uh, what happens with uh, COVID here in Toronto where I'm. And then just continue to make some good hires. Uh, That lights me up the most. It makes me happy. It makes me confident. And if somebody doesn't get fulfillment from making a good hire, I don't believe they should be responsible for hiring. Uh, as my role as the founder and CEO of this next company, one of three of my main responsibilities is I have to be the company's best recruiter. And yeah, making some more good hires and get a few stores under our belt and then hit the ground running for 2022 because I've been on pause because of COVID. Uh, so then make up for some lost time. Move quickly. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Yes but I'll keep it short. Recalibrate your thoughts on how you are serving your team. It sounds like a platitude. All these things like treat your employees great. Yeah, we're going to put that on the wall and declare, right? And now we, but are you actually, there are some companies that are unfortunately putting lipstick on a pig. And I say that with the utmost respect, but let's audit ourselves as leaders, right? Are we actually doing what we think we are doing. And like I said, look at your P&L. You'll see where you spend your most amount of money. That's what matters to you most. And I'm not here to tell anybody how to spend their money and operate. That's not on me. But if you even have a morsel of saying, I want to be a better leader, more compassionate, a more of a servant leader, then let's see how we're spending our time, money, and energy. That's Michelle Falcon. For more on Michelle and People First Culture, go to michellefalcon.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.